Hi there. Welcome here, everyone. Great to be able to open God's Word together as a community and look to see what His Holy Spirit might say to us in this time. And a reminder that with this teaching element of our service, we are moving towards the Lord's Supper, which is the high point of our time together. So as you listen to this message, you might want to gather up some supplies, some crackers and juice so that we can partake together. Let us pray. God, help us to receive what you have for us today from your word, from the holy meal, and also from your spirit who you sent to be our advocate and our helper. Amen. You know, I'm wondering who likes sneak attacks. Maybe some of you kids like to hide on your parents to jump out from behind a door or a closet and scare them. One of my kids does sneak attacks. He always has. He's 20 years old now, and he works out a lot. And his ta- attacks usually involve jumping on me and crushing me. He seems to enjoy this quite a bit. Maybe you can look around the room at each other and decide on who is the person in this room who loves doing sneak attacks the most in our family or in our friendship group. And you can point at that person. The story we are looking at today is a sneak attack story. It's about someone sneaking up on Jesus and surprising him. And we find it at Mark chapter 5, 21 to 34. And we're going to read that together. And friends, I'd like to remind you, this is the word of God. And this is what the text says. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This story is found in three of the Gospels. That's an interesting thing. It's in Mark, but it's also in Matthew and Luke. And as we know, since it was mentioned three times, just like the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned three times, that the early believers thought this was a critical and important story for people to read about, remember, and meditate on. It is a strange kind of story maybe to us to see that it's included three times because it is about a woman who has a bad bleeding problem that she cannot fix. We may not think this is a polite story, 
But sometimes discipleship and following Jesus takes us into not polite spaces. The problem for the woman was not that she was cr- just that she was chronically ill, as big of a problem as that was, but that also she was, according to the Jewish law, as seen in Leviticus 15, and it's painted there very clearly, that she was ritually unclean. So you might wonder, what, it, what does it mean to be ritually unclean? It meant that you needed to avoid other people and contact with them. And it is not just her who is unclean in this case, but then anyone she touches. So she touches somebody or bumps into someone or even an object, that becomes unclean. Typically, those who became unclean, men and women, for whatever reason, could wait seven days and then go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and become clean again. Because of her ongoing impurity, because her bleeding never stopped, she was always impure. She had an inability to ever be clean. And there were some brutal real-life consequences from this. One was that for 12 years, she had been denied entry into the temple, into her place of worship and closeness to God. And for 12 years, she would also be ostracized because no one would want to bump into her at a social gathering or get touched by her or sit where she sat or have any contact with her. As biblical scholar Candida Moss has noted, the very nature of the woman's illness is that her body lacks the appropriate boundaries and unnaturally leaks its contents into the world. In other words, to those around her, she was unnatural, weak, impure, gross, and to be avoided. She is being shamed and degraded by how the law was being applied in her particular case. And so we might ask, given the culture at her time, was she just destined to suffer as an outcast? Was this God's plan for her life? The sermon, this sermon is a second in a series that we are calling Grant Us Wisdom, Lord. And in these strange and unprecedented days, it seems fitting, but also helpful to simply utter this prayer. Grant us wisdom. It is a call to keep our collective posture as one of humility and listening to both the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to know how we might move forward in our faith journey. Today, we are looking at the question of how do we deal with personal brokenness? And the bleeding woman, I think, gives us a great template. The first thing we see in this passage is that we won't deal with deep brokenness in our lives until we just get fed up. This woman was not only sick, but she was sick of being sick. She was sick and tired of being disregarded and avoided by her community. Chrysostom, the ancient church father once noticed, it's not so much sin that plunges us into disaster as rather despair. In other words, sin is an act of problem, sins of commission, but even more so, it is the giving up, the checking out, the throwing in the towel on faith or the life journey that so critically damages human vitality. Sometimes when we are struggling with a private issue of brokenness, we learn to cope with it or manage it or kind of get by. Uh, But what happens when the coping doesn't work anymore? 
What happens when we come to the end of our rope and we're just tired of it? This woman has been struggling for 12 long years, a slave to her condition. And she has tried to find solutions, as we see in verse 26, going to all sorts of physicians, spending all her money and becoming destitute um, as a result. And you've got to wonder, what would help or cause her to be roused out of her circumstances to go out and mix in a crowd? We might call this a triggering space for her, an anxiety-producing space. Yet she goes, why? Well, the answer is really quite simple. It's the reality and presence of Jesus. How did she know about Jesus? Well, verse 27 tells us, she had heard about him and his deeds. Many of us read through Mark over Lent this last year, and in it we see Jesus operating in his field of work, our world, and he is spellbinding and wonderful to observe. And she had heard many of these stories, and so she thinks within herself, and this might be a small thing to see, but she doesn't say it to a friend. She doesn't say it to a community who's with there to help her gain healing. She's isolated, so she can only dialogue with herself. So she says to herself, if I, even, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This it might seem as a bit of a strange idea, but it's common in the ancient world of this time. Just as her clothes were considered contaminated by her sickness, in her mind, his clothes then would, in a sense, carry the healing and the redeeming nature of Jesus himself. And so that motivates her. The second thing we learn in this story is that we won't deal with our deep brokenness unless we take uh, unless we take a risk and move out of our comfort zone. So this is a ritually unclean woman, and she's about to touch an influential, ritually pure rabbi, teacher, leader, a VIP. That takes guts and maybe some desperation. It's risky, but it's a calculated risk, and she has nothing to lose at this point. She doesn't go face-to-face -face with Jesus or presume to kind of go confront him and ask him to heal her. Uh, perhaps she knew that if she tried this direct approach that the uh, disciples or the crowd or other people would shoo her away, say, oh, this is this unclean, bleeding lady. Let's get her out of the way. So instead, she tries something a little crafty and resourceful. Um, as chapter 5, verse 24 says, there is a great crowd milling around Jesus. And Chad Myers interprets her act this way. He says that she reaches out from the cover of the crowd and the crowd that gave her anonymity. And then in what Myers calls an ashamed and covert attempt at healing. So at this point in the story, we note that Jesus is traveling with a synagogue leader named uh, Jairus. And he had just come from an encounter in Gennesaret with the demoniac. So he's kind of in the middle of two things. He's released this guy who had some demons in him, and he was on his way to heal the daughter of this man. So Jesus is en route to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, and the bleeding woman unintentionally interrupts this journey of these two very important men. At this point in the text, 
as I was reading it and meditating on it and thinking about it, I remembered a famous painting by Michelangelo. And maybe you are familiar with it too. It's called The Creation of Adam. It's part of the Sistine Chapel. And in, the, in that, this particular picture, we see a picture of God reaching out and creating Adam. So there's two people, but the focus is really on their hands. And if you take a really close look at the hands, you will note a difference. We see that God's hand is reaching, strong, intentional, and focused. And Adam's hand on the other one is more passive, more on the receiving ends of things, which makes sense uh, as a depiction of creation. Yet in our story, in contrast, the picture we receive from it in our mind's eye uh, is, of, is radically of a woman who is reaching out with a hand of intention and hope to touch God. This is wild stuff. Didn't she realize she could make Jesus ritually unclean? That he would have to avoid the temple for seven days himself? That he would have to halt his ministry? These ideas would have been common currency and that, that, in her, that the plan she was making was a huge mistake and overly bold. I was in a small group a couple of years ago, and I shared that I was having a couple of emotional problems. And now this is a bit of an understatement because I felt embarrassed and ashamed about it, but it was something I was trying to struggle and work through. And so the leader of the group asked, what did I think God wanted me to do about this? I found this to be a very irritating question at this moment of sharing. But I thought about it. And in our group, I said, you know, maybe I should go see a therapist and discuss what's happening. And I was really scared and terrified to go to take the risk. Would I be exposed as weak and vulnerable and broken? Maybe I should just cancel the appointment. It can be genuinely scary when taking a perceived risk that you feel your body and your mind aren't ready for yet. But it could be a step of faith that leads to incredible liberation. The third thing we learn in this story is that we won't be able to deal with deep brokenness unless we also de deal with our shame. And you know, you might say initially, what is shame? Because people get sometimes confused about the difference What's the difference between guilt and shame and those feelings? Because they can, they can be kind of the same. So I went to Brené Brown and she defines shame this way. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed. And I will add, because of that flaw and therefore unworthy of love and be belonging. In shorthand, we might say, Guilt is a bad feeling we have for something we have done wrong, but shame is feeling worthless for who we are. Folks, we are part of a culture steeped in shame. People embarrassed for who they are rather than simply guilty for wrongs they have done. One of the saddest stories of shame I've heard was how Michael Jackson's dad used to treat him as a kid. And when Michael was a little kid, you know, you look towards your parents for affirmation and encouragement and prompting, but his dad was very cruel to him. And one of his favorite nicknames to call him was Big Nose. And he said this all the time to Michael and built this shame in him 
So was it a surprise later on in life when Michael Jackson very famously got a nose job and people said, uh, like a white person? Uh, and is it a surprise that this deep shaming he experienced led to all sorts of other damaging and terrible sins? Shame is a powerful tool that the devil uses to crush people and reduces their lives to merely trying to survive rather than living the full life God has invited them into. The shame of these kind of big nose statements seep into our bones. Racist taunts, comments about our appearance, our body weight, our shape, our economic status, gender stereotypes, intellectual capabilities, whatever it is. These things just sink into us. And aren't there also certain sins that bring not just guilt, but also shame, as if only a worthless and terrible person could commit this kind of sin? The use of pornography, for example, the committing of an abortion, the actions of stealing or crime or using drugs or alcohol, these things are stigmatized to the point of, be, of, of inviting that experience of shame. In fact, next week, Clyde will be speaking on the subject of pornography. And this is just a warning for parents and families to be aware of this, that this uh, presentation is going to happen next week because we don't want to look into these subjects to incite more shame. That is not the goal, but rather to point to the greater liberation that comes from Jesus. And so the story of the woman the bleeding woman hits its high point. She's reaching out. Uh, her massive need, shame, her hope and faith and believe in Jesus all combine into this moment. She's a mixture of all these things as she reaches and her finger, this little spot, touches his garment. And verse 28 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And so what happened? Well, when she touched him, N.T. Wright tells us, instead of uncleanness flowing from her to him, as their understanding of how impurity worked as a force, instead, a strange power seemed to flow out of him to her. Instead of him becoming unclean, she was cured. It was a healing miracle, but also an inversion and reversal of purity codes as these Jews understood them. There was something about the kingdom of Jesus that was not a kingdom of fastidious self-purity or of rule-keeping or of impeccable morals or of avoiding those who don't share your impeccable morals, but something else. It was to be a kingdom that centered around a king from whom healing and mercy and justice flows to everyone, everyone who reaches. It is an uncontrollable flow, in a sense, from Jesus to the world. Of course, right after this healing flowed out of him, Jesus was surprised. He had been sneak attacked. All these religious Jewish people had been crowding around him, curious, wondering what he would do. They were following him to, to Jairus' house to see him heal, heal her 12-year-old daughter. They'd been bumping into him and jostling around him. And the texts say it's, they were thronging around him. Uh, but what, 
were any of these points of contact, did anything happen? No. But when the marginalized, avoided, persona non grata, bleeding woman touched him, there was a difference. When Jesus realizes that healing has gone out of him, he starts, you can almost imagine him patting his chest or something as if he was looking for his wallet or we might say his cell phone. And he starts looking around. Who's the pickpocket? Like somebody took something from me. And the, the words he says precisely are, who touched my garments? Well, the disciples say to him, look around. Everybody's touching you. Everybody's bumping into you. But then he says again, who touched me? He's asking the question, who touched me? Having a heart activated by faith and trust in me. That's what he's asking. Is he angry? Is he annoyed at the presumption of the person who touched him? Is he bugged by the sneak attack? Well, verse 33, we read, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. <laughs> Just such a person of integrity right there. And suddenly Jairus, the crowd, and even Jesus gather around this woman. And, and the person who was marginalized is suddenly the center of attention. And she pours it all out. And what did Jesus say to her? Did he say, you're that bleeding woman. I've heard about you. How dare you touch me? Do you know who I am? Or he didn't put out his hand and say, you took something of mine. Now give it back. No. The first word he said to her in a couple, he says one sentence, is a powerful word. He says, daughter. Or he says, he's saying we could translate into my daughter or my child. I am so glad you are here, and I am glad that you touched my cloak. Out of this whole crowd, you understand the kingdom of God more than Jarius, more than the religious crowd, more than even the disciples who are here right now. Let me repeat this. Out of the whole crowd, she understood the kingdom of God more than who? Jesus defeated sickness in her, but I think by using this word of kinship, of belonging, of mutuality, Jesus actually did a double miracle. His healing flowed into her for her physical suffering, but also for her emotional suffering, for her shame. It is true that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but equally true that he also died on the cross for our shame. Hebrews 12, 3 says it this way, it says that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross, the Romans used the cross as a means to kill Jesus, but even more so primarily, it was meant to be a tool of shame, to, to humiliate those deemed enemies of the Roman invaders. There were much more efficient ways to murder or kill somebody if the Romans wanted to. But they wanted to humiliate and embarrass and degrade and shame their opponents. By stripping, beating, and assaulting Jesus, they hoped to quell rebellion and terrify the people of, their, people of the occupied territories they were in. 
Everyone who saw Jesus and others crucified by the Romans knew the truth of Galatians 3.13 that says this, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. But part of the surprise and power of the cross was that Jesus was not cursed or humiliated by it. He was not shamed by it. Rather, through the ever so radical love of God, he overcame the cross's incredible power to shame. This tool of Roman colonialism to subjugate people had been overcome by the love of God. In fact, God broke the power of shame, not only for Jesus, but he broke the power of shame also for us. And so what a fitting time for us to go to the Lord's Supper, to partake together. And if you have some of those elements gathered, you can maybe gather them up right now. And the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way also, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray and then we will partake. God, there are shaming forces in our world and we come against them today with this bread and this cup that you give us, this holy meal where you overflow into our lives. We thank you for this. Amen. Let's partake together. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for our online liturgy. And now a blessing for you as you go. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I bless you with the peace of Christ. Amen. Amen.